Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, the freshman year may be the most pivotal for high school students. What some schools are doing to make sure students succeed. We'll set down for a conversation with outgoing Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. Also, we'll hear about the problem of food deserts. What's the impact on communities? We'll remember a deadly plane crash that occurred 50 years ago this month in Illinois. Travel nurses help hospitals by filling critical roles on a short-term basis. But high costs are causing some hospitals to find ways to reduce their reliance on those nurses. And a bit of Central Illinois holiday history is back on display. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. This month marks 50 years since a plane fell from the sky into a southwest side Chicago neighborhood. United Airlines Flight 553 had departed Washington, D.C., bound for Omaha, Nebraska, with a scheduled stop at Midway Airport. Just before 2.30 in the afternoon, the 737 jet stalled. The end result was 40 passengers dead, along with three crew members and a mother and daughter on the ground. The devastating crash leveled some houses, damaged others, and almost immediately sparked conspiracy theories. Sarah Freistad is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. She talked with Lisa Labas about it. So, Sarah, take us back to December 8th in 1972. What were the events that led to this crash? So I spoke with a man named Evan Cotter, who was 13 at the time of the crash, and he lived across the street. He was at home in his house, you know, actually getting ready to to go play hockey after school, was what he told me. And he said all of a sudden he heard this roar of jet engines. Um, a, the wing of, of the plane slammed into the back of his family's house. Oh, my gosh. He described the rush of wind from the engines, just sent everything in the house flying, he said. Uh, bricks, the kitchen table, plaster, glass, it all went horizontal. Tell us a little bit about the neighborhood where the crash happened, this row of bungalows. How close are they to the airport? They're um, a little bit over a mile from the airport. It's it's a row, a, a typical Chicago uh, neighborhood of, of bungalows. Right. Today, what's really interesting about that neighborhood is in some respects, you know, you might never know what had happened there. You might never know there was a plane crash. But if you did know, um, walking down the street, it's it's not hard to pick out the houses that were damaged. Um, you can see where they have been rebuilt. Um, you know, there's there's a row of houses that are just newer than, than the other ones. Sure, sure. Well, Sarah, the Flight 553 crash was not the only transportation disaster in Chicago in 1972. There was one at O'Hare... I think. Right. 1972 was kind of a bad year for transportation in Chicago. So less than two weeks after this crash at Midway, um, two planes collided on a runway at O'Hare during takeoff. It was there was a dense fog on the ground and 10 people were killed in that crash. Yeah. About a month, a little bit over a month earlier, um, not not a plane crash, but in this case, two commuter trains heading into the loop crashed at a station and uh, 45 people were killed in that crash more than 300 were injured and that was on the metro electric line 
it's on what is now the Metra Electric. At the time, it was operated by a different agency. Okay, right. Okay, and and how did these events change aviation in Chicago? So, you know, certainly um, the the technology has in planes has changed a lot. The technology at airports that help planes land has changed a lot. At Midway specifically, the the area around the airport has changed a little bit uh, in the sense that there's fewer tall obstructions like trees and telephone poles. One of the runways there in the 90s was extended just a little bit, but it's kind of remarkable. The airport is really still confined by the city and the neighborhoods around it. It's it's very tightly bound. It's really a city airport. Now, there's no memorial or any indication of what happened at the site of the crash for Flight 553. And Sarah, you spoke with some survivors, and how are they marking this solemn anniversary? You know, you're right. There There is no memorial. Um, but certainly the people that I spoke with about uh, this crash, the survivors, um, it very much lives on for them. I spoke with uh, a woman named Lauren West, who was five at the time of the mm-hmm. crash. Um, she was on the plane with two sisters, a brother, and uh, both of her parents, and only she and her mother survived. Oh, gosh. She told me that all these years later, um, she and her mother have rebuilt their lives. They have um, moved forward, but certainly the crash has shaped uh, the past 50 years of her life. Sarah Freistad is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you. We have more on the crash of United Airlines Flight 553. It happened 50 years ago this month on the southwest side of Chicago. We've got a link at our website at nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. water levels on the upper Mississippi River in the Quad Cities area may affect fish this winter and next year. Michelle O'Neill reports so far studies by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources have not shown any harmful effects. On a recent Mississippi River trip south of Lock and Dam 15, the Augustana stewardship pontoon boat nearly ran aground in the Andalusia Slough. The low water is a result of the current drought. My fellow passengers and I also observed a few catfish holes along the banks, which are usually hidden underwater. To learn about catfish holes, I called fisheries biologist Andy Fowler, who works for the Iowa DNR at its Fairport Fish Hatchery. A catfish hole, I would say, is kind of a misnomer because it it almost leads you to think that a catfish are making these holes, when in fact they're probably more cleaning them out. They're more uh, natural cavities formed by river processes, you know, the flow dynamics of little swirls and eddies here and there, undercut banks, root wads, maybe muskrat or beaver dens, anything where the catfish kind of have that little area of semi-darkness and seclusion that they're really looking for for spawning for them. The male channel catfish in particular 
is what people mostly think of as uh, making these nests. That prompted more questions about low water levels in the backwaters of the Mississippi and how it affects fish, especially in the winter. Fowler says that depends on the species. Some, such as catfish and walleye, stay in the main channel, but others look for places to rest. Largemouth bass and black and white crappie and bluegill, they will go back into the backwater areas seeking out maybe four-foot depth, three-foot depth, five-foot depth or, or more if they can find it and find areas with almost zero flow because they really don't want to expend any energy through the winter and hopefully having a, a deep enough area they're going to have enough oxygen to stay alive through the year as well. He says low water could result in more fish kills. If you get that larger ice cover or the larger snow cover, then you don't get that light going into the depths of the water to create that little bit more of oxygen. You know those plants are going to be slower as well in the cold water, but if they don't get that light to create a little bit of oxygen through photosynthesis, then that's when you start having fish kills as well. And so if you have a lower volume of water back there, we could see more fish kills in the river this year in the backwater areas. Low water may also result in higher concentrations of chemicals and pollution, and the fisheries biologist says the longer they're retained in the river, the more algal blooms and bacteria flourish. That's bad for fish because they compete with fish for oxygen. Some people might say that the fishing's not as good now, and that might be true with lower water, but a lot of times what it is is those fish get concentrated, so you really need to find those spots where fish are concentrated, like on the tips of wing dams or those areas that have deeper water in the backwaters. Those fish have a, an innate response, an innate uh, thought of knowing maybe we sh shouldn't try to be in this water this year because it's just a little bit too low. Or, you know, they can kind of perceive that this might not be a good place to set up camp for the winter. The most recent Iowa DNR study about the condition of Mississippi River fish shows they're doing well. Fowler and his colleagues will continue measuring and weighing fish next year. And in the spring, catfish lovers can hope that all the male catfish find plenty of holes to attract females to lay their eggs. I'm Michelle O'Neill. Up next, we talk with Mercedes Kent, the outpatient program director of the Springfield Branch of Addiction Treatment Center Gateway Foundation. She says increased drinking, binge drinking, and driving under the influence increase over the holidays. Maureen McKinney interviewed her to learn more about the phenomenon. The Illinois Secretary of State stated that more than 20,000 DUI arrests were made in 2020 and that 245 people were killed due to alcohol-related incidents. So it's important also to remember that buzz driving is uh, considered drunk driving in the state of Illinois. So this includes people, you know, who drive under the influence of recreational marijuana or even prescription drugs. So, you know, it's illegal to drive if your blood alcohol is 0.08% or more. But you can get pulled over if it's less than that, you know, based on if your driving ability is impaired. So it's important to remember that alcohol affects your vision and slows your reaction time. So again, here at Gateway Foundation, we think it's really important to make sure that you plan ahead, that you prepare, um, have a ride set up, have an Uber, have a Lyft, you know, making sure that you're safely getting from one destination to another. What is the... Um responsible way to socialize during the holidays during the holiday season i think um 
it can be difficult. There can be friends, again, and family, students that are in town. Um, and making sure that you're being mindful about um, if you're offering drinks to somebody and they disclose that they don't want to drink, don't offer again. You don't want to push drinks on people that don't drink. They may not have said, you know, hey, I'm in sobriety or hey, I don't drink. So making sure that you're doing that, you want to make sure that, you know, at holiday parties that you're having, um, have non-alcoholic beverages that are present. So for the people that don't drink, um, you know, they can feel special too. And um, again, you know, if you are going to drink, drink responsibly. Make sure that you have a ride set up, ride share. Um, you know, the Illinois State Police shared that there was more than 20,000 DUI arrests between um, that were made in 2020, and 245 people were killed due to alcohol-related accidents. So it's really important to be responsible. Is it a time when people binge drink? Binge drinking is defined as five or more alcoholic beverages that are that are consumed in one occasion. So if we look at all the factors that are involved, um, you know, when they become intoxicated, they engage in risky behaviors. Um, they make poor decisions like getting behind the wheel to drive. Um, a night of celebratory fun can suddenly turn, you know, into um, a DUI, crashes, death. Is it true that since the pandemic, alcohol use is up? It is. Um, according to the CDC, they reported that U.S. death ranks linked to alcohol jumped 26% between 2019 and 2020. I think that, you know, over the holidays, if you find that you're drinking more than you normally do or something is problematic, it may be cautionary to um, find out if you need help. Um, we have our 24-hour hotline is 855-925-GATE. We have um, clinicians standing online to answer questions for friends and family. We also have www.gatewayfoundation.org where there are multiple questions that you can ask for yourself or a loved one to find if you need help. And just to know that help is out there, that addiction is a brain disease, it's not a moral failing, um, and recovery and hope is out there. So we're definitely here to help. That's Gateway Foundation's Mercedes Kent. She talked about the potential dangers of alcohol consumption over the holidays. Aficionados of one instrument have horned their way into the holiday season. Rich Egger brings us the story. There are some sounds you might expect to hear during the Christmas season. And some you might not. Such as the sound of euphoniums, sousaphones, and other tubas playing Christmas carols. The Western Illinois Museum hosted a tuba Christmas as part of Macomb's annual Dickens on the Square holiday celebration. It might not seem like a silent night when around 30 tuba players get together for a concert. And this is not a regular ensemble. They gathered at 5.30 p.m., held a quick rehearsal, and started the show at 7. It <laughs> definitely keeps you on your toes, you know, and you never know who's going to show up. James Land teaches the tuba at Western Illinois University, and he directed the tuba players, who ranged in experience from professionals to novices. Land says it's a joy to see people's faces light up when they hear familiar Christmas songs being played on tubas. And it's a joy to see the performers. Uh, they're always excited to play, especially as a tuba player, because you get to play the melody. Usually you never play the melody as a tuba player when you're playing a large band or large ensemble. Land called Tuba Christmas a true heavy metal Christmas concert. 
Paul Schmidt was one of the more experienced players in the ensemble. He says he's played in more than 200 tuba Christmas shows through the years. Schmidt is from far northeastern Illinois. He came to western Illinois to play in Galesburg's Tuba Christmas, which was happening the next night. And scanning the Tuba Christmas website, I found that there was one here, which I'd never done, so I thought, I'm out this way anyway. I'd like to check out this one. Schmidt says he did not know what to expect, but found McCombs to be a very good tuba Christmas. Ensembles like this, especially when it's based around a university, tend to be good, and this was not a disappointment. You know, it's got university students, people who know how to play, and they're playing for their instructor, so they're on their best behavior. <laughs> the tuba Christmas tradition began in December 1974 in New York City. Renowned tuba player Harvey Phillips organized it to honor his tuba teacher, William Bell, who was born on Christmas Day in 1902. Stay right here. We've got more to come on Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Democratic Representative Sherry Bustos has just a few weeks left in Congress before her retirement. She sat down with Tim Shelley to discuss her decade-long career on Capitol Hill and the realities of representing the 17th Congressional District, a key swing district in central and western Illinois. You look at throughout the nation, the 435 congressional districts, there are very few that are, are truly swing districts. This is a district that uh, voted for President Obama, um, but then when President Trump ran in 2016 and then again in 2020, this district voted uh, for, for Donald Trump and then uh, swung back and um, uh, you know now with redistricting, it's a very different district now under redistricting that uh, Eric Sorensen will represent um, with me uh, leaving Congress. Uh, it, is, it actually gets, uh, goes from a, a Trump plus two district, meaning he won by two points to a Biden plus eight district. So yeah, it's just, it's been all over the place, but it, it really and truly is a swing district where um, the year that Donald Trump won this district in 2016, um, I won by 20 points. So it's, that's a person going into the, the voting booth and saying, okay, hey, I'm going to vote for this Republican who has very, very different views from this Democrat, but then I'm going to vote for her. So, yeah, it's, uh, it makes this district unique. And that's required you to take kind of a, a different approach, obviously, to get people to cross the aisle to, to vote for you. I mean, you've, you've had to really reach out not only to the urban parts of your district, but also you've been very active in the really rural parts of the district. Well, this district uh, is, is actually mostly rural. You, we've got Peoria, Rock Island and Moline, and Rockford. But really in between all of that, 85% uh, of the towns have 5,000 people or fewer in, in those, those towns uh, in this congressional district. And 60% uh, or 1,000 people or fewer. So that gives you an idea that um, you know, this is not dominated by, by urban centers. And so uh, I, I think what's, what I've enjoyed about that is it's, it's my family's roots. My, my dad um, grew up on a hog farm. Um, all of my aunts and uncles and cousins on my father's side of the family, they all farm to this day. 
Um, and so th that's my family's roots. It's, it's not only because that's my family's background, but also the fact that we have almost 10,000 family farms. That's the major reason that why I wanted to serve on the House Agriculture Committee um, for the past decade, because it is making sure that you listen to people back home and, and you serve on committees where you can be of the most help. And so that's been something that's been very important for me. And one thing I really want to talk to you about, you've really taken the lead here in, in the past couple of years, especially on this, uh, the forced arbitration issue, you know, in cases of sexual harassment or, or sexual misconduct, uh, you, you've really spearheaded that. Tell me a little bit about why that issue has been so important to you and what you've really uh, kind of accomplished in that realm in Congress. Yeah, actually, there's there's breaking news on that. We just passed another piece of legislation that gets rid of non-disclosure agreements as it pertains to sexual assault or harassment. Um, and uh, President Biden just signed that into law this week, and it's something that we've been working on for, for a number of years. But, um, well, the, the reason that it's been important is, is first of all, it's it's typically women who are on the receiving end of sexual harassment and assault, not not... Uh, not always, but but typically, and um, I as a as a uh, woman, um, it is something that I wanted to make sure that I could play a role in Congress and helping get that to a better place. So five years ago, I wrote the legislation that would get rid of these clauses in 60 million Americans' um, employment contracts that would say if you are sexually harassed or you are sexually assaulted in the workplace your option for you 60 million Americans is to have your employer pay for an arbitrator and which is usually found in the favor of the employer not the employee and um, which usually if there is any kind of settlement it is the vast 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 minority um, less than one percent um, where anything good comes out of it for, for them uh, monetarily or otherwise and you've got the survivors of, of these in these uh, sexual harassment and assault cases who uh, more often than not end up being the, the uh, person who loses uh, her job or is demoted or is uh, pushed aside in some way while the perpetrator, because there have been these non-disclosure agreements, continues to, um, to act in a horrible way. So this, this uh, new legislation, which has been called the most significant labor legislation this century, is now law. Um, so what, what happened as of this week, um, if you are working under, uh, look, take a look at your employment contract, if you have non-disclosure agreements in there, as it pertains to sexual assault and harassment only, not non-disclosure agreements for business purposes, um, or that you have these, these forced arbitration clauses, which and I think forced is the, the word that is, um, is so bad here, uh, those are null and void now. Now, uh, uh, um, there's probably a lot of businesses out there that aren't going to tell you that. So um, I appreciate you asking, and part of the, the challenge we will have ahead is making sure that, that people know that those are null and void um, as of this week. Obviously, as you said, the district uh, has changed. The shape of the district has changed a little bit with the census, but uh, Eric Sorensen will be representing most of your old district. What, what advice do you have for him in terms of representing a district like this? My advice for Eric Sorensen, who will be sworn in on January 3rd as the new congressman uh, representing this region, um, is that his job is here. It's at home. Uh, you have to go out to Washington to vote, to be on the House floor, and uh, to, to work with colleagues on legislation. But, but the real work is here. 
Um, I, I, uh, my office and I were just uh, recognized as, ha as having the best constituent services of any office, any Democratic office in the House or the Senate. Um, we also were the number one Democratic office in the House at bringing back community project funding. And that was for things like what we just talked about, the Harrison School. It was also for things like um, the, the locks and dams and uh, making sure that we j just got four and a half million dollars to build this new high-tech uh, greenhouse at the uh, Peoria Ag Lab. It's for things like that. But um, the reason we did that is because uh, the, the team that we have and I have never lost sight that our real job is making sure that we're doing right by the 711,000 people in this congressional district that spans 14 counties and 150 towns. And um, it, so my advice to Eric is that the, the work is done here. When you're not out in Washington, come home. Um, I worked nearly every weekend, and that includes uh, not just Saturday, but, but most Sundays, and making sure that we never lost sight of um, what the job was all about and listening to people using you know, our two, the two ears that I have in my one mouth, using those proportionately. <laughs> And then last question would be, after, after January 2nd, what's next for Sherry Bustos? Well, I am still figuring that out. And um, as my husband reminds me that that is coming here pretty soon when um, I no longer will have a paycheck. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, I, I will tell you this, I, it, I want to be in a position where I'm making a difference one way or another. And um, so I, I'm really knitting together what my next chapter looks like. I, but I, I leave this job as a member of Congress um, still a very happy, very energetic. Um, I have loved the vast, vast majority of this job. I would say 95% of this job I have I've loved, especially being in a position to, to serve just really some, or being the voice of uh, really some awesome, great people here at home. And um, yeah, so I, I just, I want to be in a position where I'll make a difference and we'll, we'll see what that looks like. That's retiring Congresswoman Sherry Bustos discussing her career with Tim Shelley. The new 118th Congress begins January 3rd. For years, communities with limited access to food have been labeled food deserts. But amid various grocery store closures, some researchers and organizers are arguing for a more comprehensive lens to be applied to the issue. In Chicago, Melissa Renee Perry has more. Coretta Pruitt is one of the many Auburn Gresham residents who were shocked to learn that their local Aldi store closed in June. Some had even arrived at the store to go grocery shopping the day it closed, only to be met with a boarded up building. Pruitt drives by the shuttered store that was once a convenient five minute drive from her home. So it's right here to your left and it closed just Without any warning, without any notice, it closed on um, Sunday, June 12th. Now, Pruitt drives roughly half an hour to an Aldi located in South Suburban Blue Island to go grocery shopping. She takes me along with her on her updated route. First, we go to Let's Get Poppin', a popcorn store nearby. Oh my goodness. Yes. Thank you. I haven't come here. You too. I haven't come here for years. Then we walk across the street to stop into Family Dollar, and then we drive down the block for our final stop, Aldi. So there's usually like a few items I come in here and get. Mm -hmm. Especially with the spinach being as reasonable as it is, $1.49. Pruitt grabs staple items for her household. Spinach, grapes, some cans of chicken noodle soup, 
along with more exciting items like flavored water and ice cream. And now ice cream and we're ready to rock and roll. Then she checks out and we head back to Auburn Gresham. By this time, it's been well over an hour since we first left. Even Auburn Gresham's alderman, David Moore, says that Aldi gave him no notice of the closure. So what happened? In a statement, Aldi blamed declining sales and repeated burglaries. But Moore disagrees. He says the only two incidents that he is aware of took place during the widespread civil unrest in the summer of 2020. And his office immediately responded by increasing police presence at the store. And the Aldi's, when doing the civil unrest, was the only store that was open during the Auburn Gresham community because we were able to protect that one. In October of last year, the Aldi in West Garfield Park closed in an almost identical fashion. Shortly after this closure, West Garfield Park's Save-A-Lot temporarily shut down, leaving an entire community without a grocery store. Shania Davis is the executive assistant for the Garfield Park Right to Wellness Collaborative. Currently, the collaborative is working with the city to figure out how to fill the vacated space. Before the closure, Davis visited her neighborhood Aldi often. Since I've been here, I watched two grocery stores close. I found out that Aldi's was closing on my way to Aldi's to grocery shop. At the time, I didn't have a car. So it was like, okay, where are we going to, you know, go? How are we going to figure this out? Eventually, I had to get a car. Along with the Aldi closures in West Garfield Park and Auburn Gresham, Whole Foods announced it would be closing its Inglewood location, the Southside neighborhood's largest grocery store. Opened in 2016, the Whole Foods was initially celebrated for its potential to bring healthier food options to the area. Now, collectively, these three closures have sparked widespread outrage, along with a larger conversation about the inequity of Chicago's food landscape. Enrique Orozco is a data and communication specialist at the Chicago Food Policy Action Council. Different grocery stores, like all of these, like Whole Foods, at the end of the day, they're, they're a business. Their purpose is not to feed people or feed our communities. Their mission as a business is to make money. Food desert is a common term that has been used to describe areas with low food access. However, some activists dislike the phrase, arguing for the use of food apartheid instead. Orozco says labeling a community a food desert implies that low food access is naturally occurring and limits accountability. It's wrong to just assume that that's the way things are and it sucks that there are communities where there's no food. This came around because of very intentional and very systematic policies that were made by people. Calling the system for what it is, a food apartheid, also gives power back to people, gives power back to organizers. A 2018 study by local researchers found that overall, the number of supermarkets increased in the city of Chicago from 2007 to 2014. But there is little to no improvement in food accessibility in communities with low food access at the start of the study period. Daniel Block, one of the researchers, says that this pattern continues, with the south and west sides having the worst food access in the city. Block claims that this pattern is far from random. I like to think about maps of low food access as actually maps of disinvestment. So. You know, we see that those maps often align with 
historic maps and redlining. Store closes and it doesn't reopen. That's adds to that pattern of disinvestment. Regardless of all these reasoning, its closure in Auburn Gresham has left the neighborhood reeling. Fitzgerald Cran, director of social services at St. Sabina, runs a food pantry in Auburn Gresham. He's seen a spike in clients since the closure. I think a lot of people have made my food pantry their their uh, grocery store because of the fact that there aren't any, you know, within uh, maybe a mile or so radius from where they may live. Soon, the residents of Auburn Gresham may have another grocery store to choose from. The Black-owned company, Yellow Banana, recently received a $13.5 million grant to update and revitalize Save-A-Lot stores across the city. As part of this grant, Yellow Banana plans to buy and reopen a shuttered Save-A-Lot location in Auburn Gresham. They also plan on renovating the Save-A-Lot in West Garfield Park. Michael Nance, co-founder of Yellow Banana, says a key goal of the company will be communicating with the residents and the communities they serve. Communities that have seen stores come and go throughout the years. We understand that there are challenges, but uh, we also understand that you've got to communicate. Uh, our hope is that the community understands that we see a reflection of ourselves in them and that we intend to treat them accordingly. While food is essential for survival, Orozco with the Chicago Food Policy Action Council says it also plays a major role in the vitality of any given community. Food is, is our culture, food is our, our family, food is our friends. You need it to survive, but it's so much more than that. It's the heart and soul of, of family and communities. If you're not worried about surviving, you can enjoy your family, you can enjoy your community. Food just connects us all. By viewing these disparities in food access through a lens of food apartheid, the hope is that more sustainable, transformative interventions will be put into place in Chicago and beyond. Melissa Renee Perry, WBZ News. Well, if you bought a Christmas tree this year, you might notice they're in tight supply, partly due to drought. But forester David Bruton says this year's short supply stems from the effects of severe drought in previous years. It takes about eight years for a Christmas tree to grow six to eight feet tall. Bruton says tree seedlings need plenty of water during their first two to three years of growth. The biggest issue with drought years, those seedlings that are planted in those years, if the growers don't have supplemental water that provide those little seedlings, the survival rate goes down dramatically. With more than half the U.S. experiencing drought, Bruton says natural Christmas tree lovers can expect fewer trees for sale in the future. There's more on the way on Statewide. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still ahead, how schools are working to help students in their most crucial year of high school, their freshman year. But up next, an iconic piece of Central Illinois holiday history that seemed lost forever is once again on display in Peoria. Urban Artifacts, a vintage souvenir and antique shop, acquired a nostalgic item seen by generations of gift-seeking children. Reporter Joe Deacon talked with the co-owner John Walker about their newest attraction and how they acquired it. What we have in our back room is a original Bergner's Talking Christmas Tree. Bergner's had uh, 13 stores, give or take, uh, over the years and had a talking Christmas tree in every one of their stores back in the 60s and 70s. And it's a type of deal where they would have them and bring them out at Christmas time and there would be somebody in the tree talking to the kids, asking them what they wanted for Christmas. And uh, this was a tradition 
for many years uh, in central Illinois. And uh, so there was one here locally at the Sheridan Village Bergners. There was one in the downtown Bergners and Pekin Bergners. All, all the Bergners had them. So they used these trees up until, uh, I guess, through the 70s, maybe into the 80s. And then they quit using them. And everybody thought they were all long gone. Uh, they'd been damaged or destroyed or thrown out or whatever. And so I think uh, the thought was that nobody will ever see another talking Christmas tree again. And uh, last year, a couple from up in the LaSalle, Peru area called me and had one in their barn that they had acquired and asked if we would be interested in taking it and displaying it. And of course, we said, sure, we would. And so we've had it for several months and brought it out here at, at Thanksgiving. So w- this wasn't one of the ones at Sheridan Village? Was this one of the ones up in, in that area? Yeah, we believe this is one that was from up north. We think that they probably built, you know, a dozen, 13 of them. Uh, all identical, and shipped them out to all their stores at the time. And so the one that you'd see up there, the one you'd see at Peoria, and they were all basically the same tree. So people, when they see this one, it, it looks exactly like what they remember seeing at Sharon Village store. So if I understand it correctly, though, the Peoria one was the first one, and the other ones kind of followed from there. Is, is that what, the way well, you understand yeah, yeah, that's very possible. It probably was since Bergner's was headquartered in Peoria. I don't know that for a fact, but it's very possible that they started with one here and expanded it through their other stores. You know, they probably tested a lot of things, I'm guessing, here in Peoria before taking them to their other stores. A talking tree is kind of a unique and different thing that you would see around Christmas time, not something you'd see everywhere else. Yeah, no, I think it was a unique promotion to the Bergner's chain uh, at the time. I mean, it's not to say there's not, wasn't other department stores doing something similar, but uh, everybody seems to remember Bergner's and their talking tree. And I mean, it's kind of legendary, really. It, it's a iconic piece of uh, history for uh, people in central Illinois. And anybody growing up in the 60s or 70s uh, more than likely remembers talking to the tree. What does it mean to be able to have this piece in your collection that you've got here? Oh, I think it's a great honor. I mean, to, to be able to have one of these trees, I was so excited. The fact that we're able to have a place to display it for the public to see it, I think that's the most important thing. I mean, it wouldn't mean much just to have one and have it in your own collection hidden away somewhere. I think the fact that we're able to have it here on public display at Christmas time in Peoria is huge. You know, it'll be something that we'll bring out every year and display it and people can bring their kids in and and bring their relatives in that remember it or tell their kids about it and, uh, you know, some of their memories. So tell me a little bit more about your store. How long has Urban Artifacts been here and what is it you do? We've been in business for about 11 years, although I've been buying and selling antiques since I was eight years old with my parents. But uh, we buy and sell antiques, collectibles, vintage goods. Uh, we do some new product. Uh, just We're not your traditional antique shop. We don't have your grandma's antiques as much as we do maybe your baby boomer parents' antiques or younger. We try to accommodate or, or try to have items that somebody in their late 20s might even enjoy You know, on up. We try to have a wide variety of things for sale. My favorite thing is Peoria-related collectibles, uh, old signs, old advertising that related to... We manufactured so much in the Peoria area and made so much in the Peoria area over the years. There's a lot of items out there that, you know, relate to Peoria, things that were made here or brewed here or distilled here or, or manufactured here. You know, everything from maybe tractors to perhaps Blue Ribbon to Gips Beer to Caterpillar to, you know, the list goes on and on and on of the things that Peoria made. 
And getting back to the talking tree then, so you kind of said your plan then is to have it on public display each holiday season? Yeah, we'll bring it out uh, probably around Thanksgiving each year and, and have it here for the month of December. And people, again, can bring their kids in, bring their families in to reminisce and, and share memories and enjoy it. That's John Walker, the co-owner of Urban Artifacts in Peoria, and he spoke with Joe Deacon. Nursing shortages have reached crisis levels in some parts of the country. Turnover rates are high and staff positions can take months to fill. The shortage has led hospitals to rely more on travel nurses that come with big price tags. Holden Absher reports for Side Effects Public Media that the financial strain is causing some hospitals to rethink their retention efforts. Travel nurses fill temporary openings in hospitals around the country. These nurses often sign contracts for a few months at a time and then move on to experience a new city. But for Enid Bedford, it means being closer to family. Her youngest son plays football for Indiana University, and he tore his ACL in the first game of the season. She lives about six and a half hours south of the campus, but was able to land a travel nurse contract at a hospital nearby. I wasn't here to intrude on his life as a 21-year-old college student, but to help him transition um, with his injury. And now that he's doing so well, I'll finish my assignment and then I'll be on my way. Bedford first started traveling for better pay and a better schedule shortly after the pandemic hit. I typically work, you know, maybe a 13 or 26 week assignment and then I can go home for two months and be able to sit down and relax and spend time with my husband or family. Some people become travel nurses for the flexibility, others do it to improve finances. Travel nurse pay varies widely depending on the assignment, but estimates show hourly wages are at least double, if not triple, the $39 per hour that a staff nurse makes. Some people have even figured out how to get the benefits of being a travel nurse without ever actually having to go far from home. They're known as local travelers, and like Brakayla Hillis, they tend to take contracts within 90 minutes of home. I've always liked taking care of people. Um, I was as a kid, I would play with baby dolls and be the doctor or the nurse, so I always knew that was my route. Hillis never expected traveling would be her life, but she says the financial and scheduling benefits were too good to refuse, especially since she's in school to become a nurse practitioner. She's taken assignments in a handful of cities, including one at a hospital that was transitioning to a new location and hoping to cut back on its reliance on travel nurses. We were very heavily staffed with travelers, and then when we moved to the new hospital, they kind of were trying to get back to where it was just the staff nursing and kind of weed out the travelers, so they did a, a major pay cut by about 2,000 a week. Hillis says the hospital where she works now is trying to prevent nurses from leaving behind their staff positions for travel assignments by offering triple bonuses to compete with traveler pay. The hospitals are trying to basically reward the staff um, just so that they don't have to use travelers, but it still seems to, ha to happen. Yet only about a quarter of U.S. hospitals anticipate reducing their reliance on travel nurses, and that's according to one report from a national staffing agency. When hospitals hire travel nurses, they don't pay them directly. Nurses sign on with staffing agencies, which enter into contracts with hospitals. Rachel Culpepper with the Indiana Association for Nursing Leadership says these agencies sometimes walk away with double or triple what nurses make, and it's causing the industry to take a closer look at the value of these contracts. And I just want to stress, we're not evaluating the actual nurses' pay, it is the agency's pay, because that is, that is more of the financial burden that we're seeing in organizations. 
Weekly pay for travelers has dropped since the height of the pandemic, but Culpepper says hospitals are still in a market war with staffing agencies, and it's forcing them to reconsider staff benefits. Some hospitals are looking at ways to improve employee culture, increase paid time off, or even changing standard shift hours. We've been doing 12-hour shifts for a long time, and we're hearing from hearing from our, our team members that that might not be what they want any longer. Whatever the solution, it's important that hospitals address the issue of understaffing because it's known to contribute to burnout and also raises concern about patient safety. For Side Effects Public Media, I'm Holden Apsher. Research says the most crucial year in any student's education is their freshman year of high school. It can easily make or break their chances to graduate. Peter Medlin has more on how schools are using data and good old-fashioned relationship building to keep freshmen on track. During the 2007-2008 school year, Oregon high school freshmen finished with 273 semester Fs. That's bad, and it's an even bigger problem when you realize that those 273 Fs came from a freshman class of only 130 students. Kimberly Radisis was a young teacher at Oregon back then, and that year she helped start their Hawks Take Flight program to help freshmen who were struggling. And they didn't have that much data back then, so at first it was just a homework hub where once a week she and a few other teachers would stay an hour after school with 10 students. Since then, we've developed that homework hub into more of an individualized approach where each one of the students that we've pulled in gets a teacher mentor. Each one of those students has an adult that's there for them all year, that's rooting for them, that helps them set goals in terms of academics and social-emotional learning. By 2019, just before the pandemic, Oregon had gone from 273 freshman Fs to just seven. 99% of Oregon students were on track to graduate. This year, Kimberly Radistis was awarded the 2022 Illinois Teacher of the Year. And one of her biggest goals is to share freshman on track ideas with schools across the state. This spring, she plans to travel Illinois visiting schools with high freshman on track percentages and schools that have improved over the past few years during the pandemic. She'll help put together checklists for schools that are struggling. And she's also been giving speeches to any teachers and administrators who will listen. David Carson is one of them. He's the assistant superintendent at Belvedere Community School District 100. Last spring, he had a meeting with all the high school principals and admin in their district. And they were really concerned with the number of students who are not really engaged with their high school experience, especially after the tumults and the trauma of COVID-19. District 100's graduation rate last year was the lowest it had been in years. Studies show that a school district's graduation rate is directly tied to freshman success. If a student ends their freshman year with a D average, they have a less than 28% chance of graduating on time. I don't want to wait and not do something. Clearly there's a problem and that problem existed before the pandemic. It's just the scope of it is a little bit bigger now. And probably the reasons for it are, are different. Soon after, a colleague heard Radice speak at an event and he got in touch to bring her out to Belvedere to learn more. They're still in the research and development part of creating their own Hawks Take Flight type of program. And Radice says one of the first questions she hears from interested schools like Belvedere is, how do you know which students need help? In Oregon, they spent years developing an early warning system to identify students starting in the eighth grade. We actually know the 15% of our student body that's most at risk of not graduating on time before they even reach our building. But what indicators are they actually looking at? Well, Radisis says they've narrowed it down to seven factors. 
They look at obvious things like GPA, attendance, referrals, and missing assignments, but they also include the number of health visits to the school nurse and positive indicators like community service and school activities they're involved in. With that, they can calculate a risk score to see if the student falls within the 15% who will join Hawks Take Flight. Another big question she gets is about what happens once you get them in your program. Why will students actually be motivated to participate? These are kids that often have failed multiple courses in the past. And as a result, they come to freshman year not confident about school at all. And so we're trying to build up their confidence by reinforcing those behaviors and showing them that hey, the future for you really is bright. Look, you're doing all of these right things. This year, Hawks Take Flight has 17 students and seven teachers. Every week, they all meet together, and students spend time with their mentor to reflect on the last week and set goals for the next one. That might be, let's raise your Algebra 1 grade um, because we know that you have this test coming up. Or it could be a social-emotional goal where it's like cheerleading tryouts are coming out. You're not involved in any activities. I'd like to see you have a conversation with the cheerleading coach. She says they provide snacks and make sure to celebrate positive behaviors, big and small. Maybe the biggest thing is devoting the time and staff resources to freshman initiatives. Oregon's freshman teachers have a common plan period where they can look at behavior trends, check out data, and share ideas. Radisys says you can look year by year and see Oregon's freshman on-track rate rise and fall as more or less teachers are able to participate. And she thinks that with the proper time and staff investment, these ideas are scalable to districts of any size. What I'm already finding in conversations, though, is the things that we're doing in small-town Illinois works everywhere. I'm Peter Medlin. Listen next week to Statewide. Peter will tell us what a large district is doing to bring freshmen and graduation rates along. That's all the time we have for this episode of Statewide. And be sure to be with us next time when we have more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. All of our episodes, they're available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. And our weekly podcast can be found through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois public radio stations. (laughs) 